Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you in what it's like to be a top performer in life, love, and business. So joining me today is Rainier Wild, and he has a master's in community counseling and psychology. He's a certified vocational specialist and certified CBT life coach. Uh, he's been extensively trained in Eastern mindfulness, Western contemplative practices. I don't know why that's always a hard one for me to say. Like every single time, <laughs> it's a hard one for me to say. Uh, and the art of Socratic questioning. And he's spent thousands of hours professionally interacting with men in all different stages of life, from spiritual seekers wanting training uh, in being present to men scrambling to get their lives pieced back together. So today we talk about a bunch of different things. We We dig into... Uh, the shadow and what the shadow is. Rainier shares his personal story. Uh, he was a therapist for a number of years until he had an affair. Uh, and that affair shook his life at the foundation, at the core. Um, but he was able to move through it and save his marriage and get his life on track. And so we talk about his personal journey, his personal experience. And then we we go into what the shadow is, how it shows up. And you can kind of piece it back and see how it showed up in Rainier's life. Uh, we also talk about initiation and why initiation is so important, uh, which by the way, I have a uh, special mini episode that's coming up later on this week where I dig super deep into this, uh, into this specific topic because it's something that uh, we need to talk more about. So we discussed that and, uh, and, and we dig into a little bit about faith because uh, interestingly enough, Rainier for quite a few years ran a faith-based community, uh, which was quite interesting. So we talk about that as well. So without, uh, without going too much further into it, I'm going to bring him in. But I just want to remind everyone, uh, guys, definitely head on over to, Manto- uh, to the Facebook community, Mantox community. Uh, you can check that out on Facebook. We've got you know 42 or 4,300 guys on there with some great conversations. Uh, don't forget to follow me on Instagram. And finally, we have two uh, men's weekends that are filling up quickly. We have another one in August on the West Coast, on the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia. Um, if you want to check that out, go to mantalks.com. And we are announcing a special weekend that's going to be on the East Coast in upstate New York. Uh, both are limited. We have space for only a, a certain number of guys, uh, and they are filling up quickly. So if you are interested in that, definitely head on over to mantalks.com. Uh, the last men's weekends, uh, I led two back-to-back men's weekends, actually, uh, in the last three weeks uh, that went incredibly well. And I just wanted to read you off one of the the, the quotes that the men left me with because uh, it really was quite a special weekend. And uh, I think that, that this gives you a sense of what the weekends are all about. This gentleman says, the Man Talks weekend allowed me to rediscover who I am deep inside and establish a new sense of self and purpose. The time in the sessions taught me to become a better listener and more aware of the people that are around me. It is now easier to have a genuine conversation with strangers, with my children, and most importantly, with my partner, to look them in the eye. Shame had previously prevented me from doing that. I never wanted anyone to truly see me because there was a part of me that was ashamed of who I actually am. 
My fears and anxieties surrounding the thought of ejection are gone. Finally, new confidence is in me to take on the people who have not and are not treating me with the respect that everyone in life deserves. The very last thing I would like to thank Connor for is for saving my marriage. In the past two days, my wife has seen a new fire in me and is starting to come around to the man that I always have known that I am and am capable of being. It is still going to take some time to gain that trust back fully, but I have <laughs> but I have gone up seven points in many days. And he's, he goes on to say, I asked my wife when I started and I was at a two and now I'm at a nine. <laughs> so <laughs> that, uh, that was just a, a little snippet from one of the gentlemen that came to our last weekend. Uh, and, you know, we talked about the primal. We talked about sex and intimacy and got pretty deep into that. Uh, we do a ton of shadow work. We've built initiation into it. You get to learn breathing methods, meditation methods. Uh, you get all the food provided for you, accommodation. You get to go swim in the lake and you get to do it uh, with a, a group of like-minded men who are really working on themselves and crushing it in life. So uh, if you're interested, again, go check out mantalks.com. And uh, hopefully we'll see you there. So without any further delay or ado, please welcome Rainier Wild. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here, Connor. Yeah, likewise. I'm glad to have you on here. You know, there's some exciting stuff that we are going to get into on this podcast that um, I'm not sure if we've really dug super deep on. And I'm excited to talk about that because it's a very relevant, very relevant topic. But before we get into that, uh, I got to start with the with the question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that's made you who you are today. I love that you start there. So let's just jump into it. I I guess I'm thinking of um, a moment in time several years ago, and it had been a hell of a year. I had experienced sort of a meteoric career in mental health and academia. And that had all come to a close, just directly related to my own compulsive choices. I had, I'd fucked a coworker and uh, generally been an asshole of a human being. I had acted uh, sort of like a character in someone else's melodramatic novel. I had also founded a faith community and participated in that and then left it that year. Mm. Uh, I left a lot of longtime friends and good folks in the lurch. And it had all seemed like a liberating move, but it had just left me more isolated. Of course, as you could imagine, the, the marriage that I had committed to and been a part of, which was my second, um, was now a casualty of just this broken way of living in the world. And just honestly, it looked like life was falling apart. It had never felt as over for me as it did in that moment. And I knew I was facing loss literally in every arena. You know, I, I remember thinking work down the toilet, family gone, relationships ruined. Mm. I don't have anything left. And my wife had stayed. Uh, and we're still together, by the way, um, in an amazing turnaround story. but. During that time, there was this one evening, and this is what I'm thinking of. We had put the kids to bed, and we had turned off the lights, and we were standing in our bedroom. Neither of us were really moving at all. And I can recall in that moment 
looking at my partner and she was sobbing. We, we, we both were um, a lot during those days. And I, I asked her really helplessly, what do you want me to do? And I, I will just never forget her words. She said, fucking be the man. Be the man. Mm. And I think that's the story I want to tell. And I'll leave it there. Uh, that was a, an incredible turnaround point. Nice. Well, I appreciate you sharing you know, so openly and just some of the pieces that happened. You know, it's funny, I, as you were saying, you know, I, I turned to her and I you know, said, what, what do you want me to do? I half expected you, half expected her, I guess, to say, you know, get your shit together. <laughs> like, like, just get, yes. yeah, 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 just that get your shit exactly. together, you know? <laughs> and I think, you know, in, in some ways, in some ways, do you feel like when she said, and maybe you can just unpack it a little bit, but behind the words, just fucking be the man, what what did you feel like that meant? What was that communicating to you in that moment? Well, I think the reality of that moment was that all of my defense mechanisms had ground down to a halt. You know, um, whatever had been working up to that point had stopped. <laughs> um, and, and the truth of it is that, you know, most of us develop our our personalities, our personas as sort of coping strategies to deal with the disappointments in life. And uh, we cover up our essential selves or our inner genius very, very quickly with all of these strategies to protect us from hurt and disappointment. Sometimes I, I like to say, yeah. hi, my name is Rainier and I'm a defense mechanism. You know, I mean, that is the reality of our persona. And I think up to that point, my coping strategies, my defense mechanisms had largely been to collect this sort of basement of novelty mm. around sex and sexuality, that I was living out this kind of, again, this character in someone else's story kind of approach to life in a very hidden sense. And I've been doing that since I was 14 years old, you know, fairly successful at it in the sense that the feedback loop had never hit me yet. And in that moment, what she was saying was, hey, your defense mechanisms and coping strategies aren't working for me anymore. Uh, you got to find a new way to live. And I think, you know, it all works until it doesn't. Mm -hmm. What what would you say led you so astray? Because I think this is, you know, as I was saying before we came online, this is such a common thing where men will find themselves in what we might deem or what we might call rock bottom, or they might find themselves in a space where they can definitely tell that they're heading towards the rock bottom, sort of like they're going downhill on a ski slope. And it's like, Oh, shit, how do I stop? <laughs> how do I how do I get back on the T bar and go back up the mountain? Um, but what would you say are were some of the contributing factors to that, you know, downhill slide or, or spiral that led you to that moment? Well, I think one of them was uh, I was fortunate enough in my 20s to be part of a really phenomenal uh, group of individuals, uh, roughly 40 adults and eventually the same number of children uh, that lived in close proximity with one another intentionally. And many of us worked together and played together and prayed together. Besides living near each other, we were deeply invested in each other's lives. 
um, which is, you know, really a radical thing to do in today's dominant culture. And part of that community was a, a very close bond with other men that had served me well in my 20s. But then I had gone through a, a rather painful divorce in my late 20s uh, with the woman I was married to at the time and had left that intentional community that I had been a part of and founded uh, a decade earlier. And for the first time, I, I felt genuinely disconnected from the companionship of other men. I didn't have people providing that feedback loop. I didn't have men calling bullshit on me. I didn't have a, an unsafe place. I talk about that idea a lot, an unsafe place, meaning a place where I can actually share my authentic truth and be held responsible for what I share. I didn't have that. And I certainly wasn't seeking it out. <laughs> I wasn't submitting to that in my life. And I had sort of built myself up on a pedestal of my own making where I was alone. I was isolated. And I was also working damned hard to make a name for myself, to, to master the career of my choosing. I was creating a platform that was really, really shaky. And, uh, and again, under it was that basement, right? That, that shadow. So I think it was really a matter of time before the scaffolding fell. Um, but certainly isolation, lack of connection with other men, uh, and not just in a, you know, watching football kind of sense, but truly a, a deep relating. Um, and then just workaholism in general. I think we're all contributing factors. Mm, I see. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that makes a ton of sense. It, I'm curious about the, the faith-based community. Can you tell me a little bit more about what prompted you to found that and, you know, where, where that sort of led you? And, and was it, you know, was it uh, like a Christian-based faith, uh, faith community or is it something that you created yourself? Yeah, I created my own God. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thing. I, I had gone, uh, I grew up uh, Christian uh, in the Judeo-Christian faith. My dad was a tele-evangelist, uh, which is always kind of a, a humorous concept. I saw the lower 48 United States. Uh, from the backseat of a station wagon, getting dragged from one camp meeting and weird Pentecostal style revival, if those words mean anything to people, do uh, another. And it was a really bizarre childhood. I was really, really hungry for rootedness. I think a lot of people in our culture are today, whether they grew up in that environment or not. I really wanted something with permanence. I, I moved 18 times before I was 18 years old. Didn't go to the same high school one year in a row. I really wanted to feel grounded and rooted. And together with several of my best friends following uh, my first year of college, we began, we got a hold of these medieval mystics who defined themselves as Christians. But if you, if you really look at mystical literature, whether it's Christian or Hindu or Muslim or, or Buddhist, or I think on down the line, you'll really find a great deal of similarity, um, this non-dual approach to living. We were very, very infatuated with this mystical approach to the universe. 
that the world is what we can see and taste and touch and hold and handle, and it's more besides. And we really want to encounter, wanted to encounter that moreness. And so out of those readings, we became very, very close. It was a Judeo-Christian experience. However, again, I think there was something really essential going on. We were talking about it in very broad and inviting open language. Um, so that was in my late teens, actually. And eventually we started to all kind of get married and settle down and decided to, to be around each other more. There was a really strong countercultural bent to what we were doing. We wanted a flat leadership model where there wasn't a single leader. It was a really impactful time. We tried a lot of different things and we felt it was really important that we move on beyond the ritual, move on beyond uh, belief structures and into living. So we intentionally lived near one another, worked with one another, played with one another. It was a whole life experience that we, uh, we tried to, to create. It's really interesting. You know, I think that, you know, what you're saying is that's, that's a very counterculture thing to do right now, but it's something that I see more and more in people really craving is that, that closeness and that connection to people that are in their life that they want to spend time with, whether it's family or friends and build that type of community. I, I sort of have a bunch of questions in this area, but I, I won't take us you know, too far off topic because there's a few things that I, I do want to talk about. But how, first and foremost, how have you seen some of the challenges? Because you sort of created a counter church model, right? Like the regular church model is very, very hierarchical, very much like there's someone that is the, is the sort of conduit to God and teaches you how to then worship and, and sort of be in commune um, with, with the faith, with the religion more specifically. So how was this different in your perspective from, uh, from a regular church? And what, would, what were the benefits of that? Well, I think it was different because we saw each individual uh, person as a contributor. The idea of, and I, I think, uh, you know, as you said, most most churches and probably even most religious traditions, at least in the West, are very top down, very hierarchical in their models. And we were decidedly um, distributed in that idea. We took a play from the organic and observational world of the wild and realized that every part had a place um, and a function. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you take the evangelical Christian model of a pastor or, or a priest um, who sort of is, is the decision maker, every person was a priest in that community. Every person had decisions. Functionally, how that looked was we had various meetings that kind of divided out responsibilities, ideas, and decision making. So um, all the men would get together once a week. And, concoct ideas. All the women would get together once a week and concoct ideas. We would share those with each other. We would have large group meetings where everyone met. We would kind of segment into committees sometimes. Um, and every person had a voice in those meetings. It was very, very important. We really only had one rule, and that was the rule of one no. And so the idea was that if you wanted to do something, we could go ahead and do it. Uh, unless someone said no. And all it would take was one person saying no to shut the whole thing down. 
um, to whatever idea or, or concept we wanted to explore. Now, it was really interesting because because the weight of no was so big, we only really had a few no's in the whole history of that community. Only a few times did someone actually say no, because, you know, no matters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I like that idea because I, I would imagine that it also created a certain amount of liberation or freedom in the ability to bring forward what you really want to talk about, you know, what you really want to express and do and um, all, all of those pieces. So how, how do you think that your your time within this sort of structure, uh, would you call it a faith-based structure or a religious-based structure? Like, how would you identify that? And, and maybe just before I move on, what would you say is the difference between faith and, and religion, if there is one? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think we certainly defined ourselves as faith-based or spiritual as opposed to necessarily religious in nature at the time. We certainly were wired in such a way where we wanted to have these conversations for us with, with the Christian language that was very, very important. We wanted to have these experiences that we read about in the sacred texts. Uh, that we were processing through and digesting. But at the same time, we did not want to be identified or affiliated with a with an organization that came with bylaws and charters. We didn't even have a name. And I, I remember reading a quote some time ago that always kind of influenced me and inspired me. It said, once Christianity was a force without a name, now it is a name without a force. And whether that's true or not, I don't know, but we decidedly took that as our challenge. Um, we certainly had come to the point where we found, like G.K. Chesterton said, that Christianity was not tried and found wanting. It was simply not tried. And so when we read these sacred texts, we wanted to live very, very close to how we understood them at the time. Um, so that meant uh, certainly a common sharing of life. And I think that is very different. Uh, quite frankly, than a religious organization that is trying to be relevant to whatever cultural models there are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. So within this model, I just to just to kind of shift a little bit here, because one of the things that that I really wanted to talk about and dive into in a certain depth on this episode is around initiation. And, you know, it's interesting, right? Because in a, in a lot of religious structures, there is initiation. You go through a mitzvah or you go through a baptism and it's supposed to represent this initiation into a different way of being into a different chapter and <clears throat> excuse me in your life did you have an initiation uh, within within that faith structure you know we didn't um and we always talked about it because we certainly actually had young men growing up during that time it was probably one of the biggest downfalls uh of that group just candidly and probably one of its unravelings, I, I started to travel the nation and, and the globe sort of observing and assisting other communities that were working towards the same committed place. And what I noticed, you know, both in that group that I was a part of and many others was how often people just relied on a group just as a deflection from having to, to really make their own way in the world. And they were hiding from life by joining community. And, you know, when I read anthropological studies, um, I understand that it is individuals like that who become the weak links of a tribe. And tribal culture just didn't allow for a person to be unindividuated. You really had to pull your own weight 
And, and that's why men were initiated. Uh, they had to be pulled out of that receptive consumerism of boyhood that I kind of think of it as. They had to be rescued out of it to become producers. And so, of course, you know, in our culture, a, a boy, and that's who I'm primarily interested in, men and, and boys, um, they can become financial producers uh, and certainly generate a lot of product, but they're still consumers. In terms of materials and sex and women and emotions, that's my story. They hadn't, you know, woken up to being a man or a member of the tribe. They're just sort of taking from the rest of the community. So that's why I think of really uh, in uh, initiation as the place where we create strong enough individuals to have the capacity to form tribes. It takes a hell of a lot of work, and it really forces a man to plunge himself uh, into that dark night of the soul experience where he sheds his identity to be reformed mm. in order to be strong enough to carry community. Otherwise, he's a taker. So I think that my my experience with the lack of initiation in that community is is part of what birthed my own understanding of what was necessary. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, so let's, let's shift into initiation a little bit more fully. I, I know that you uh, sort of unpacked a, a little bit around initiation, but from your perspective, what would you say is the, what would you say is the main benefit? Like, why do you think that we as men have had initiation experiences and rites of passage for such a long time and why they're so important? Yeah, well, if you look at what that word initiation is, it's really a rebirthing or a birthing. It's the beginning of something. And I think particularly how a man becomes a member of a tribe, which is through that tribal initiation, you know, almost think of it as a hero's journey experience. It's a quest. I think if we apply modern understandings to it, it probably was part coaching, part depth psychology, part contemplative, part mysticism, all of that kind of rolled into a very primitive experience. But most of all, it was that birthing. It didn't represent the end of something. It was really, really the beginning of something. And in traditional cultures, initiation served several purposes that I think are super necessary. Uh, first, that interactive process cut a boy away from the soft and empathetic world of the feminine. Because up to that point, a youth had his needs met. He was given dignity on the basis of his identity. He was treated with tenderness and compassion. And however important that is to his development, it, it hardly would have met the needs of the tribe. Only a man exposed to adversity uh, would be able to not fragment. Uh, otherwise, he would be fearful and blame others. And so an initiation ritual was aimed to simulate hardship early on and force the boy to learn self-reliance. And I think second, it created the conditions where a child could acknowledge his own mortality and face death. And if a man hasn't done that, he'll, he'll develop phobias and obsessions and compulsive behaviors. But by ritualizing that death, the tribe would give the boy an experience where he could see the cycles of life and death without terror. So if you look at just those two purposes alone, right, to actually 
cut away from his neediness to the feminine and to confront his own mortality. Boy, those are so necessary in our culture today, aren't they? Yeah, yes, definitely. <laughs> they seem to be coming up quite a bit. But I think, you know, where I wanted to dig in there, what stood out to me is, you know, a man's relationship to mortality is a man's relationship to death. So I was wondering if you can expand on that just a little bit and, and sort of unpack why that's such an important piece for for a boy to learn, for a man to learn along along his way. Well, I think of it in part psychologically. Again, while I'm not a practicing therapist anymore, I'm a, a trained therapist and, and I work extensively with these psychological principles. And one of the things that is so apparent when you encounter people who, who come to you for help is that the great backstop of what so many of us are dealing with is this idea of a hard stop to life. You know, it's kind of like if you're in the kitchen much, you'll at times the noise will stop and you'll hear the refrigerator buzzing in the background. You'll just hear this and you'll think to yourself, oh my God, the refrigerator has been buzzing this whole time. How could I have not noticed it before? It's really, really loud. And that's kind of like death, right? It's this background noise that is always going, but our activities sort of obscure that. And when we stop, we start to hear that sound. It can become deafening if you begin to listen to it. And so we develop these anxieties, we develop these phobias, we develop these fears, whether it's the fear of heights or the fear of public speaking in a way, right? These are all kinds of endings that we're terrified of. And it, it largely has to do with death. This idea of, of confronting something that is totally outside of our control, that we can't manage, that we can't deal with. And as the only tools that we have to actually encounter this uncontrollable force are things like faith or hope or love, these, these ancient wisdom tools that prepare us to deal with the tragic. I, I'm thinking of a situation that, that recently happened. My sister called me and um, she said, this horrible thing happened. I said, what happened? She said, my, my next door neighbor was pregnant, eight months pregnant with their child. And uh, she got a call that her daughter and her husband had been involved in a car accident and she lost them both. And she fell down the stairs and she miscarried the baby. You just think about that five minute moment where she, this, this incredible person, lost three lives within five minutes, right? Her whole life has changed. What are the resources you have to meet that moment, right? Do you meet that moment with insurance policies? Do you meet that moment with the rise and fall of the Dow Jones Industrial? Right? Like, how do you meet that moment? You can't manage that. Those are the tools we learn uh, somewhere else entirely. We used to teach that. We used to instill that. And if you haven't confronted death, you will always be the victim of that background noise. Yeah, I love the way that you're describing it, you know, the background noise that's sort of ever present. And, you know, I think death is such an interesting thing that when, you know, the, the men that, that I've seen that oftentimes haven't gone through uh, some form of initiation or 
haven't witnessed death or haven't sort of faced death sometimes have a very interesting relationship to the unknown and the uncontrollable and have these deep-seated fears or anxieties or these um you know these these pieces that you're that you're talking about where there's there's sort of these uh how do I want to describe it there's these parts that they that they obsess about you know and they fixate on and they have, uh, you know, it's it's like porn. They'll go to porn constantly as an avoider, or you know, they will. They'll they'll have all these uh, all these addictions to certain things in their life that have to be a very specific way, because there's such an such a deep discomfort with the unknown that they don't want to face it. And I think that removing initiations from our culture and from our society has produced this large amount and deep-seated amount of, of anxiety within men and stress within men, specifically with the unknown. You know, like I, I, see, I see guys who look at their family, look at their business, look at their career. And a lot of the times the work that is being done is helping them uh, confront the unknown, helping them become comfortable with the uncontrollable or the incontrollable. And, and that is a huge, huge part of, of the work. And, you know, I think there is sort of a, there's also a, a surrendering that initiation rights are thrust upon men, you know, because it teach them, it teaches them how to trust within themselves. Um, but it also teaches them how to surrender and sort of soften to the support of others. And they they can start to see the value in the support of others that that other people can that other people can directly impact their lives. So I'm I'm curious to get your perspective on what role other people play within our initiation and 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 how how does initiation actually support our family and support our relationships and support our our purpose and our path and our careers. Well, first of all, I, w- I want to just reference something. You know, one thing that's really interesting about the difference between the sexes is that there is this longstanding saying, whether, it, again, it's true or not, I'm not sure, but women are born, men are created. Um, but if you think about that, a girl becomes a woman through this experience of dying that is innate to her body, right? In the womb of her lived experience, she literally traditionally becomes this woman the first time that happens in her body. She literally feels actively death working in her. And almost every tribal culture had to externalize a man's own death before he was really prepared to face life. And I just wanted to say that because I think that's a really interesting difference between men and women. And I would say this, that the role of others is very difficult today. I think that we, I was just talking with a a guest on uh, on my podcast about his own dark night of the soul. And I asked him something similar. I said, who did you have to to reach out to during this experience in your late thirties? Who could help guide you through that? And he paused for a long time. He said, there was no one. Now, I think that sometimes we feel that more than is true, right? That there is actually no one. Well, I think there's a lot of people out there But I think there aren't that many people out there who are, one, willing to talk about their own dark nights of the soul, their turnarounds, 
and uh, the wisdom that they have gained since then. But then there aren't that many people who are um, able to actually articulate it in ways that are meaningful. I think there has been a loss of eldership among men in particular. I remember my grandfather, uh, who was a World War II war hero, so much wisdom to share from that experience. Very, very difficult for him to talk about it, as is true with so many men who have come back from those profound experiences. In fact, if you asked him directly, he would sort of just mutter something and look the other way. I think that that is our experience of these painful moments with older men often, that they're not really well equipped to dialogue about it. That, that might be one of the great gifts post-1970s of the expressive men's movement, that men were actually starting to talk about their experiences again. So I think we do have an advantage there, but, but it's still painfully lacking. So I think that the role of eldership has always been so important. Older men inviting younger men or uninitiated men into this experience and then equipping them, almost re-brainwashing them with the new skills that they will need for life. It's rare. I think it really is rare. And we need it. We need it for our businesses. We need it for our relationships. When I went through my crisis, my, my death experience, my own initiation. There were only two older men that I knew to call, but thank God I knew two at least. And I did call them and I, I paid the price. I counted the cost. I traveled the length to go to them and say, I am an empty vessel right now. Pour into me. And I was fortunate enough that they had the ability to do so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because I think, you know, when I look back at at my time as well, there were uh, there were a few men in my life, and thankfully, one of them happened to be my mentor, who I'd you know known for a year or two. But he took a much larger role in my in my life as I went through this uh, dark night of the soul, and uh, and he you know he actually was the was the person that imparted a lot of knowledge around Jungian psychology onto me and helped me through a lot of that understanding the shadow understanding you know the unconscious and the collective unconscious and the subconscious how all those things work and how they're built and and it was a really interesting period in in my life to speak with someone who had gone through that before and who had gone through it a, you know a few times not just like once but had gone through it a few times because you know I think the misconception in, in life is that once we face it once we're we're good <laughs> it's like you're good you're good to go right. uh but but i've i have noticed with with many people that uh, they can have they can have a few of those experiences throughout their life depending on what's coming up and and learning those lessons is incredibly important and having someone guide you through it is is uh is equally important so what would you say you you personally learned from from that time, from your initiation, from your uh, dark night of the soul? How, how would you condense that if you could? Well, I think one of the really practical things was I learned to rely on men in ways that up to that point I hadn't. I uh, I had I I talk about it. I had vampirically relied on the feminine. Um, to gain my energy for comfort. Uh, when I was needy, I, I would go to, you know, 
my mom or surrogate, <laughs> uh, insert any number of lovers, uh, for that, that attention, um, to be coddled and connected with. What I realized was that that had produced a certain effect. And the effect that it had produced in my life was not only damaging to me, it had been damaging to those others, to countless others. So I knew that I needed a different way of being. And one of the ways of being that I needed was to be dependent on and around men. And that's hard because if you're truly vulnerable with other men and you create that unsafe space with them, whether professionally or privately, you kind of want a man who's going to call you on your bullshit, who's going to actually say, okay, you didn't meet your goals last week. Hmm. What do you need to do differently? Right? They're not going to pat you on the bum and say, oh, let me wipe your tushy for you. You know, they're actually going to say, no. No, how can I inspire you, uh, you know, parenthetically kick your ass enough to move you forward? That became really important for me to experience the harsh realities of the masculine focus. That was a takeaway for me. I think another takeaway had to do with integrating my own shadow. And I think sometimes this is a bit of the conversation around confronting mortality. You know, so much of the idea of the shadow, which is really the collective parts of yourself and your personality that you have rejected, suppressed, and denied as not acceptable to others, particularly. Um, I had to recognize very tenderly that that was a part of me, not a part of me that needed to be rejected, but rather a part of me that needed to be listened to and loved. And at times told explicitly, well, that's a great idea. Johnny, but uh, you're probably not going to be able to act on that effectively. So let's move forward. But still a part of me that needed to be attended to. So I think integrating my shadow was a secondary uh, experience as well from within that and truly beginning to learn how to mm -hmm. practice what I call deep democracy, listening to all the parts. They all have a place. Uh, I think third, connecting with the feminine in a new way. And I referenced it earlier, uh, the vampiric dependency. But when I began to connect with the wild, with nature herself, uh, what traditional cultures might have almost understood in terms of the goddess, um, you really can't be vampirically dependent on her. She's quite frankly too wild. If you're up in the mountains and suddenly a storm erupts on you, that's not nice and comfy. Right. Instead, you have to learn to develop a very deep and profound respect for her turbulence. And that's something else that I, I developed during that time was mm -hmm. this deep appreciation of the wildness of the feminine. I think those elements kind of combined an appreciation for the sacred masculine, particularly coming to me in the form of tribe, an integration of my own shadow, and then. Uh, a, a deep respect for the divine feminine. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting, right? You're talking about these unsafe spaces, <laughs> which I, which I love the, the context of, you know, we do a lot of that at the men's weekends where we'll create these circles where, you know, men are called for, I call it calling, for, you know, calling on another man forward. And really it's, it's exactly that. It's an unsafe space where you're going to get challenged. And I think, you know, we, there is a large sort of coddling of of men 
with other men specifically. I think a lot of women now in the in the public and in the in current culture are definitely calling men out. Um, mm-hmm. But there isn't a lot of men calling each other forward into their capabilities, into their capacities and their potentials. And it takes some directness and some assertiveness. And there's a certain level of, you know, removing our ego from it. I always say that calling each other out is is very ego based. We get something out of it. We get to feel good and puff our chests and be like, oh, yeah, I, I called him out. But when you call someone forward, it's actually more about them. It's more about their growth, their stepping into their capacities, and you simply holding them ca- accountable to that. You're just a vessel and a vehicle to holding them accountable. And you know, I think right. our work environments aren't really conducive for that. You know, there's a huge sort of politically correct culture. Don't say the wrong thing within work environments, and so men have less and less. Uh, environments and, and groups and settings where other people are are holding them accountable to what they say they want to do and who they say they want to be. And so I love this idea of creating unsafe spaces uh, for us as men to explore some of those things. The, the second thing that I want to just dig into here quickly, which I'm sure that we could do a whole uh, episode on, is the shadow. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, first and foremost, um, this is the largest, I think this is probably the most important part for me, you know, with the, with working with men specifically, because, you know, we have big parts of our identity and our ego that we don't want to look at, but maybe just for the listener, uh, can you unpack what, how you define the shadow and, and why it's important to work with it? Well, when we think of character development, when we think of how our, our personalities are formed over time, it's important to understand that that word persona is based on this ancient Greek concept of a mask. It's the mask that an actor would wear um, as he's performing. Jung, borrowing on that term, called our personalities, our personas, our personas. They're not so much us as much as they are the masks that we wear is one way of thinking about them. There's no judgment on that. I think sometimes we think of that in very judgmental terms. But the truth is, we're always wearing these masks. Why do we wear masks? Well, we wear masks um, to please uh, the cultures and the families and the people around us. But inevitably, the things under those masks are still there, right? And the shadow is part of what is there. It's the part that has been displaced that is so unacceptable to that outward persona that might be judged or that might be um, disclaimed by the outer. And so what we do is we shelf it. We put it in that basement that I kind of talked about earlier. Um, It gets cut from the highlight reels of our life and it goes to the cutting room floor, but it doesn't die there. It lives on. And it becomes sort of, and to mix my analogies completely here, it becomes the ghost in the halls, right? It's the ghost that lives in our life. And if you think about this idea of the ghost that's, that's hanging around there, well, it turns up and it frightens us from time to time. We're terrified of it. So the shadow is that part of us that is sort of haunting us. And it peers from time to time and pushes us into these terrifying situations. But of course, if you explore that just a little bit, 
the idea of a ghost is someone that needs to be exercised. They haven't moved on fully. So Jung, the, the great father of this concept of the shadow, would have said that an archetype, uh, it will run rampant in our lives. It will have great effect in our lives until you exercise it, until you get it out. And so how do you do that? Well, you, you recognize it. You state it. You examine it. You know, it's kind of like inviting someone over for dinner. If you've ever had this experience where you invite someone over, a guest, and they don't leave, right? They just, they keep talking and talking and you want them to leave and you're like yawning. And you're like, well, I got to put the kids to bed. And, you know, and, and then you just start looking in desperation at your spouse. Well, that's kind of the idea of these parts of ourselves. They, they're guests that don't leave. And how do you get a guest to leave? Well, you recognize the idea that he hasn't actually said what he wants or needs to. There's something that's missing here and you've got to get to it. So with the shadow, what you do is you recognize this part that was unacceptable, that was ashamed, that was judged, that was disclaimed, and you begin to listen to it. You begin to say, wow, what are you really trying to say here? And as you listen to it, this now becomes a guest who can move. So the idea of integrating the shadow can be really scary for some people, right? Will I leave my wife? Will I leave my spouse? Will I quit my job? Will I ruin my life? Maybe, maybe, or maybe by listening to it, you'll actually find that all of those things are renewed and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and maximized. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that perspective for many reasons. And I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, we, we see that what's in our shadow is often the, the parts that we reject or the parts that we want to avoid or disavow or the parts of ourselves and our identity that we dislike or feel insecure about. Uh, but off, but not, maybe not often, but sometimes people can also store their perceived potential in their shadow, which I find very interesting. And they can hide the parts of themselves that are their strength and are their their um, their power? They can also store it away in there for any number of reasons. Whether you know trauma happened in the past, or um, you know they've just never been shown how to sort of claim that that power or claim that strength, that direction and leadership. And so the the shadow is doesn't just house the parts of ourselves, which I think is really what you're alluding to. Is that in the basement we can store a lot of stuff? It's not just the sort of the the perceptually negative part of ourselves there's there's right. also these these other pieces so from your perspective what what are some of the steps that some of the listeners can take to start to work on their shadow to start to integrate these pieces and explore their their psychological basement if you will it's interesting because a, a man actually emailed me just a few days ago and said point blank how do i eliminate my shadow <laughs> and, the uh, best the best question <laughs> totally and i i responded directly with this you don't you fall in love with it mm. um i think one of my mentors said it really well he said your sin is your gift and until you accept that you won't ever live out of your gifting and so to what you're saying as far as there's a lot of power and giftedness and energy that also gets stored into those basements you know, we think of our shadow as that least desirable part of ourself that we just want to eliminate or ruthlessly cut off. But that's really not, that's not true, right? At its deepest effect. Uh, again, it's about sitting down and listening to what they have to say. 
because they didn't have the courage to say it, so to speak. They're mm-hmm. kind of, they're haunting us. So to what end? Well, right. Uh, the shadow needs to feel heard. The shadow needs to feel valued. The shadow needs to understand its worth. I think a simple place that I start just personally is beginning to practice. And this is ridiculously simple, but beginning to practice mindfulness is something, right? To drop into, I use the word deep democracy. If you're not practicing mindfulness, you're not aware of the competing voices that are going on. And so you need to begin to listen to all of what is in a given moment. That's step one, beginning to become painfully mindful of all of what is in the moment. That's deep democracy. Second, something as simple as journaling or externalizing, right? You've not only observed, but now you're moving into describing. Sometimes describing comes in the form of having a feedback loop like a mentor or a a trusted friend, an advisor, a counselor, a, a coach, something like that who can really externalize that process. Sometimes it's as simple as bringing in an empty chair and pretending that your shadow is right there and talking to them, you know, and then going back and forth between chairs that you're sitting in. Um, but you need to find a way of describing what it is you're now observing in that deeply democratic process. And then as that shadow has voice, you can really begin to determine the pros and cons of listening to that voice, right? It's no longer a ghost. It's a real person. It's now corporeal, tangible. And so with this tangible thing in hand, you can say, well, is that something I want to act on? For instance, there was a, there was a man who his shadow, much like many men I know, and certainly it's part of my own experience, was sex. And he was haunted by this idea of having sex with his secretary. He just, mm-hmm. he wanted it. I mean, and boy, and every time I pushed him, I said, uh, you know, let's talk about your shadow. And he would get so exasperated. He would say, I don't want to talk about my shadow. I'll, I'll, I'll fuck everything up if I do. <laughs> and finally, I, I got him to the place. Where I said, well, let's, let's really listen to that shadow. Sure enough, part of what was going on was he deeply, deeply wanted to have this encounter with this, this employee of his. And so I asked him to map it out. All right, take me through it. I want to hear it in all its vivid detail. Let's give it full license. So he took me through it. It was really pornographic. I got to be honest. I mean, it was it was disturbing. It was great. He was letting it out for the first time. And then I said, okay, what happens after that? It was like the first time he had ever thought of that. You know, he had been so caught up in avoiding actually talking about this deep-seated desire that he had never thought about the effect. So then we begin to really map out the effect and so on and so forth. Finally, I got to look at him and say, do you want that? Well, no, I don't. Was his very simple response. Said, great, that's great. So let's not do it. You know, it was amazing. He stopped having that fantasy. The moment I gave him permission to do it, <laughs> to really let it out, uh, it lost power. Mm. I think that's a big, a big principle. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great, that's such a great example of the shadow that the shadow and how it can have this, you know, immense amount of control over us simply because we're avoiding acknowledging it. And sometimes it does take us, um, you know, to, to engage with someone who does this type of work and to, to guide us through that process. So Really appreciate that. And, you know, I wish we could dive full into that, but we're going to be, we're going to have to wrap it up here for the day. 
Um, well, I think we'll leave him on a little bit of a cliffhanger, which is good. <laughs> um, just getting into the shadow a little bit. And uh, yeah, so for all of those that are out there, uh, definitely go check out Rainier. Uh, Rainier, where would you like people to to look you up and find out more about you? Yeah, well, if you're interested in this journey, definitely go to my website, evolvingwild.live, evolvingwild.live. And if you're interested, go to evolvingwild.live backslash 10 day challenge. That's one zero day challenge, 10 day challenge. It's a free 10 day challenge in self-initiation. I bring a lot of these tools to bear to help men create greater insight and clarity. It's a low buy-in free, uh, but I do expect absolute commitment to beginning that process of rebirth together. If you're interested in working with me, there's a work with me tab and we can just jump straight into the whole uh, thing. But honestly, more than anything, Go to my website, connect. Let's just begin to have a relationship. I think that uh, I'm very interested in helping men discover their sense of living without hope, without fear, and being truly free, right? Mm. Confident. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Uh, for everyone that's out there listening, definitely go check Rainier out. And uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're on today. Uh, whether you're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And until next week, join me for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.